Oh, all right. Well, thanks very much indeed for downloading. Oh, I sounded slightly resentful. There, <laughs> thanks. Oh, it's you again, is it? All oh, right. We were just sitting here quietly and go and download us. What's all that about? <laughs> here we are, speaking yes. into your head. Uh, and uh, t- today's programme comes to you in association with our good friends at WH Smith. Yes. Who we like very much. Just wander in and say hello to them. Yes, uh, and mention our name, you know. Well, uh, is that a good idea? Yes, I think so. Hello, I'm here. Go uh, up to Simon the assistant. and Matt told me to come, up, c- come in here. Apparently I get something. Do I get a biro? No, you don't. No, you don't. Get to the back of the queue. <laughs> Put your chewing gum back. No, you Free can't. Caramac? No. Caramac? Is a Caramac, are they still going? It is, it is still going. All right. Anyway, so, uh, so thanks to them. So we've got a Kate Atkinson special coming up. This is another one of our one-author specials. Yes. Because, like me, good authors, they're just two a penny these yes, days. Yes, they are, yes. Behind the scenes at the museum, human croquet, mm-hmm. emotionally weird, life after life, a god in ruins, and uh, her new book is Transcription. Behind the scenes, a lot of people will remember won the Whitbread, uh, first novel and Book of the Year prize. This is back in 95. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Costa novel uh, was for Life After Life and Costa novel also go for A God in Ruins. So you could say she's blooming successful. She is very good, mm. yes. And this one, this is a, a great, a great uh, issue from her as well. So I think the purpose of saying this before she's in the studio is it gets a little bit embarrassing yeah we can't keep saying how great people are even though i will be doing that with certain guests more of that later yes but um yeah you can't do that when they're there because you get embarrassed anyway so that's how great our next guest is yes even though we're not saying that to her face no to her face uh so we'll get to kate uh, in just a moment uh some correspondence first of all ian price uh, i read a book in my teenage years about th- i think this is after i mentioned few shows back, Torchy the Battery Boy. Yes. And then we got Twizzle so the Broomstick. so much correspondence about Torchy the Battery Boy. And then like, Walter the, the hot, hot water, water bottle. bottle boy that could fly. <laughs> I read a book in my teenage years about 30 years ago that I'd like to reread. Only problem is I can't remember the title or the author. So this is like a plea for help. Okay. Only a few remnants of detail have, re- have been retained. Can you and the listeners help? Basically, it was set in World War II, possibly towards the end. Okay. The main character, I think on the Allied side, was hiding from the enemy and was using abandoned hotels as hideouts. There was also quite a bit of hiding in the underground system. I suspect it may have been London. I remember the person hiding having to navigate themselves around hundreds of bodies that had become husks. Oh, right. That's all I can remember, says uh, Ian not sure if this is a service you offer, but if it helps, I've been promoting a certain historical fiction book <laughs> to anyone that will listen. Well, I mean, we can mention that you've what got you a mean? certain historical fiction book out. I mean, oh, come on. Oh, you mean Mad Blood Stirring? <laughs> yes, I do, which well, I really enjoyed. And I you. obviously am going to say that, but I really did. Well, Ian has been promoting it to yes, everybody. Yes, good anyway. for him. But anyway, he didn't write in about that. He wants So if that rings any bells, because this is very kind of high-class... feels audience. very horror, doesn't it, if you're picking your way past bodies and... It become husks. Yeah, yes. Said in World War Two. If anyone knows what that is, uh, can you email, please? And our email address is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. And you can also uh, contact us on Twitter, at Books of the Year, and Dinica Tenhover... Uh, tweeted us to say, when there is no entertainment, poor TV reception and limited Wi-Fi in the hotel room in Chernobyl, there's only one solution. Listen to the latest Books of the Year podcast, Another Triumph. Good to see that we are, you know, probably about fourth down on the list there, but but, but good good to know anyway. Jackie Karonka says, I love the conversation between the authors. Can I ask whether they are given each other's books or whether they've just done their own research? 
hashtag wants a writer. Well, they are given a little bit of a heads up, aren't they? And sometimes yes. they have read the whole book. Yeah, it kind of also depends on the publisher and the author and, yes. all, that, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and David Haslam, one thing that really frustrates me about book buying, I love to own hardbacks, but they are a nightmare to carry when I travel. Why can't publishers provide a free download code with each hardback so as to save a copy onto an e-reader? If what I a buy a CD idea. online, I often get a digital download of the same music. Why can't book publishers work out a way to do this? I'm sure there could be a solution to piracy issues and it would encourage hardback purchase and make reading much easier. Well, I like thoughts? having hardbacks because I am a deeply vain man and I like to have them displayed on my bookshelf. Look to how intelligent people. I am. Look how sophisticated I am. Am I reading the, the free paper on the tube? No, <laughs> no I'm reading, I'm, I'm reading a book. Uh, OK, so I think we've been faffing around for long enough. We have. Yes. And it's high time we brought you a special guest. Kate Atkinson is here with her new book, which is called Transcription. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hello, Simon. It's very nice to see you again. Oh, nice to see you again. So, um, how do we find you with uh, with another book out? Do we find you uh, chipper and raring to go? Do we find you uh, angsty and worried as to how it's going to be received? What do you like when a book comes out? Oh, that's a, a good question. Um, I'm fine up until the moment, and then I just want to go into a bolt hole and never see any single review of it, I think. Really? I, uh, Dickens apparently used to go to Broadstairs whenever a book was published and sort of hide his head in the sands. I, um, I'm fine until, I think, that people are going to have opinions and I don't really <laughs> like people's opinions very right. much. <laughs> Should we just skip the next half hour then? It's, you get, you know, you, you have publicists the world over who will send you a review and they'll say, this is a great review and you read it and you think this is a great review and there's always a but near the end and it's the but that you remember. I'm sure all of us are the same. It's, just, it's only the but that you take with you. I remember in Stephen Fry's First, the first volume of his memoirs, which I think was called Moab is My Wash Pot, he says how annoyed he was that on a school report it said approaching genius. And it was the word... <laughs> approaching. It was the word approaching that really, really annoyed him. Whereas everyone else is going to go, really? You've got the word genius anywhere in there. So despite all the success that you've had and all the books that you've had, it, does, that, does the nervousness ever go... You know, like the day before publication or the day before reviews or the day before... Uh, anyone else gets to to read it? Are you more blasé at all? I think I think it depends on how you, it's not how I feel about the book because I feel pretty much the same about every book. It's that you know that some books are more likely to be likable. I know that sounds odd, but mm. I knew, for example, with Behind the Scenes, and I certainly knew with Life After Life. This is a likable book. People will like this book. You sort of have a feeling. And so if you know that you've got a likable book coming out, you're a little bit more relaxed. But if you've got a book coming out that you think that some people probably won't like this book, then that's you don't want to hear the butts from the people who don't like it. OK, well, you're teeing up the next question. Aren't you? Which, where, <laughs> okay. where, where does this one come in then? Is this a likable book? Um, Oh, well, I can hardly say no, can I, at this point? <laughs> I think so. I think it's just slightly more, you have to make maybe slightly more of an effort to read it in a way because it chops around a bit in time and so you have to, you have to be kind of conscious. I mean, I often read books and I'm just like, oh, God, I have no idea what's happening. So I just, I worry about that. I also always worry about people who read on Kindle because I can't read on Kindle. I can't move around on Kindle. I'm you know, it's useless at it. And I do worry that, you know, that it's the kind of book where if you sort of lost what year you were in, you'd be going, oh, I have no idea what's happening. And but, do, could, could you bottle or could you describe 
what it is that makes, and just with reference to your books, mm. a likeable book or a book that someone's going to have to work harder at or be more divisive? I suppose if I knew what made a likeable book, uh, they'd all be likeable. <laughs> I think a lot of it's in the narrator or the central character, someone that you know that people will really cleave to or really find sympathetic. I think. Oh, that's. I mean, having said that, I think Juliet Armstrong in Transcription is is a very sympathetic character, but she's also. S- slightly devious so that perhaps takes away from it whereas say um, Ursula in Life After Life is just heroic so therefore you kind of feel that people will will like that. Okay so uh, we'll talk more about Juliet in just a moment. Matt describe uh, the cover of uh, Kate Atkinson's. Mm. So it's it's basically it's a blue background for this book and then dominating the sort of lower part of the of the front cover is a flamingo standing on one leg as as flamingos do and then Kate Atkinson's big bold letters in red and transcription in black beneath it. He's, he's, a, he's a stylish flamingo. He's not a sort of a, a inflatable pool flamingo, I'd like to say. Yes. So you chose the flamingo, <laughs> did you? Right. <laughs> Copy approval on the flamingo. It's an upper crust An upper flamingo. crust flamingo, exactly. <laughs> and I expect for the next year to be receiving many flamingo-themed gifts and cards as, as I... As, well, with, God in Ruins, there's a hair on the cover, so everything I got had a hair on it. There was a fox on Life After Life. I have more fox-themed things in my house than <laughs> is good for a woman, so I'm really not looking forward to all the flamingos I'm about to get. What is the significance of the flamingo? <laughs> it's a code name. I can't really say more than that, I think, no. perhaps. OK, but it's the, it's the obvious question. And there is, there is, it does actually relate. There is reference mm, to a course. flamingo in the book. It's not a completely it's not, you've just randomly sort of animal. <laughs> So Juliet, so Juliet Armstrong, just introduce us to to Juliet and the kind of the time zones that we that we move from. Well, we to. We're, we're in either nineteen forty one or nineteen fifty one in the book, so a, a ten year time gap between obviously between the war in nineteen forty one or nineteen forty, sort of forty forty one, and nineteen fifty. I'm saying nineteen fifty one because that's the year I was born, so I'm automatically thinking fifty one. It's actually forty and fifty. It is forty and fifty. It is forty yeah. and fifty. It's good that you know that. <laughs> and, it, and there's also nineteen eighty one at the beginning. And <clears throat> thank you very much. Nineteen eighty one. That's what was fooling me. And there's a one in that. It's um, she's very different because she's only eighteen in nineteen forty. So she's appears to be quite naive and I wouldn't say innocent she doesn't have an innocent voice but I think she's she's young basically but she's a much more cynical older version of herself in the 1950s she's been through the war basically and she's done things and she's now got a kind of grown-up job as a BBC producer so she's she's a different kind of animal and it's the change for me that was interesting to have someone who who changes and grows in that time frame and you don't really know what's happened to her to make that difference until you're quite well on into the book, I think. So where did she where did she come from? Where the, where did the idea for Juliet come from? Or was it the the idea of working with some you know, flipping between BBC and MI five and No, I mean the, the the idea for the book originally came from the National Archives itself because the MI five does periodic releases to the National Archives at, at their own whim. There's no set, you know, oh every six months we'll release more things. But this was a, a release about the identity of Jack King, who has his identity has been mulled over for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And it turns out he was a man called Eric Roberts, who um, masqueraded as a bank clerk. There's, there's only a certain amount of information you can get about Jack King and Eric Roberts. And I think I've had it all. And he 
scooped up all the fifth column at the beginning of the war. And we're still in the phony war phase at this point, before the Blitz. And he persuaded them all that he was a Gestapo agent working out of a Gestapo paid-for flat on the Edgware Road and that they could bring their information to him as spies and he would then pass it on to the, the German government. And they believed that. And even after the war, they were never told that this wasn't the case. So they they died, these people, thinking that they had helped um, the Nazi war effort. But it was... So I started off with that and I was thinking, this is fascinating, this is so interesting. And I was... I was writing another book at the time and I was doing that kind of writer terrified thing that somebody else would notice and think this is a great idea for a novel. So I spent quite a long time thinking, oh, please, nobody, please, nobody notices. <laughs> but then I didn't want to write about Jack King or Eric Roberts because Eric Roberts was a real person and his, you know, his descendants are still alive. And I think it's horrible to write about real people. I hate it if someone put me into a novel. I think everybody would. So... I read the transcriptions themselves of these conversations he had in the Edgware Road with his, his sympathisers, and there's about 600 pages of, of transcriptions I downloaded from the National Archives. And it was then that I started thinking, how do I get into this story? So I took a much more oblique route, which was through the girl, and it's undoubtedly a girl, who was typing up the transcriptions. And, I mean, I've been an audio typist, so I felt a certain sympathy with the you know sitting there with your headphones on tapping away and I thought that she would be she would be a much more interesting person to be writing about in fact so that's where Juliet came from and at the same time I was reading um Human Voices the Pen Penelope Fitzgerald novel which is about the BBC in wartime it's just the most wonderful novel I love this book so much and it's funny it's very funny and the two seem to go together, I think. I think what I really wanted to do was to write a book about the BBC in wartime, but somehow MI5 snuck in there under the barrier. And did you just stumble, did you make it a regular habit of looking at these releases that MI5 make, or did you just sort of stumble into it? I was looking at the National Archives a lot at the time because I was researching um, bombing figures for A God in Ruins and, and other things to do with A God in Ruins, so that was really how I came across them. So no, I don't, yeah, I, it's a while since I've looked at the National Archives. We're talking to Kate Atkinson, more in a moment. Matt. Yes, no, I, I, I delved into this. And you've already talked about the uh, the releases that you were sort of obviously poring over. Mm. And uh, featured throughout the book, we've got these sort of transcriptions of, mm. of what's going on in... It's Dolphin Square is where is, you, you, you've set this, where this Gestapo okay. agent is apparently taking information from, from fascist sympathisers. And it struck me that it, it must have been um, for writing down those conversations, because those conversations, bluntly, sometimes do unearth something, but quite a lot of the time it's just... Idle gossip going nowhere and really so does. tedious. I know. And, and, of course, the great fear at the beginning of the war, and we have the gift of hindsight, obviously, was that the fifth column was powerful and was going to, you know, was really the enemy and that it was going to really derail the war. And so from that point of view, you know, they were, they were seen as important. But actually, when you read them, it is, they're all, you know, although they're not 
exact facsimiles I've, I've, I've rewritten them because of copyright issues, really, that all those things like biscuit intervals, cigarette interviews, shall we go to the pub now? And then it's like all of this idle gossip and you think, oh, my goodness, these people were so far from dangerous. But actually there were a few very important things that they were willing to, to give away to do with technical things to do with aircraft and so on. But you do wonder if it was worth the effort in the end. (laughs) Is it true? Because there is a a sequence in the book that I thought, this must be true. I don't think you would have made this up, where um, it was an idea to give each of them a sort of iron cross. Yes, that's true. It's true. So that they would be readily identified as... I wish I could remember the German name for it. It's the Krieg. Oh, it's a long, one of these long Krieg names. And it's the civilian medal, I've discovered. And yes, they were going to get them as little lapel badges so that they could be identified, and they got them. And I don't know where I was. I was somewhere not long ago, and I was looking in the window a second hand shop and I saw one and I was just like oh my god oh my god look at that look at that and everyone's like what what and I'm going it's, it's the medal and I should have bought it really but I'm not really into buying Nazi memorabilia no, no. So, but it was it was an act I know some of the really more abstruse or bizarre things that are are in the novel are not the made up ones. It's it's uh, it's strange, isn't it? So uh, so who are the fifth column? I, you know, both in real life and and in, well they mostly mostly they were you do before in the 1930s there were lots of fascist supporting groups i mean lots there you know there was a, there was a yorkshire one there was a you know all over the place uh, but the main one was the british union of fascists of which mostly was the i don't know what you call them the head and most but not all of the people who were coming to jacking were ex members of the buf which had sort of been I, you know, illegal, basically, when war broke out. So they had a long history of supporting fascism. And, you know, fascism, like communism, was really quite a vigorous movement after the First World War, possibly not as much as communism, but lots of people were fascists, were communists, and it wasn't seen, again, with the hindsight of history, we think, oh, fascists or British fascists. I think they were slightly less dangerous than than they were perceived. They were just, you know, splinter groups here and there, I think. But obviously with the war, it became important that any fascist sympathiser was was rounded up and, and they considered rounding them up. And, of course, a lot of the senior fascists were in prison, like Mosley. But in the end, they thought it would be more valuable to find out what they knew and to simply siphon it off. And basically, Jack King took them off the streets, as it were. He, so, Jack, so Jack King is the real... Well, that, that's the person... The real... Well, he's not real. Again, we find all these, these yes. sort of shifting identities. So, so you have this character, Godfrey Toby. Godfrey Toby. And he's he's your... He's my Jack King. He's <laughs> yes, and he's is it him Jack that King. says, when we were just talking about the Fifth Column and the Nordic League and all these... Ah. Uh, and all these guys that it's you're remembering these things better than me. Best that, they could, <laughs> that they you're allowing them to flourish, but within a walled garden. Yes, yes, that's the idea. Yes, yes, and so they will bring information, and you will know what information they have access to as well. So you will know where it's coming from. Was there anything that they that they said that was useful? Um, that you read that would have been useful. Um, only again, the, the, certainly technical details, because um, some of the one, at least one of them, was working in an aircraft factory, uh, and another one knew details of, um, you know, the the chaff, the aluminium stuff that the planes put down to mm. to Fox. Um, the radar. 
the radar that he was about to give that away, which would have been quite a big thing. So there are things like that. But mostly what they knew, they did. They spent a lot of time with maps and making maps and poring over installations and where airfields were and things like that. So they did. They were actively trying to find out things that would have helped the enemy, there's no doubt. But probably less than was feared, I suspect. Mm. And if you, if, if you worked in OI5, did you find it an easy switch to go and work for the BBC and schools broadcasting? And Me personally? <laughs> I had a, a a book that my was a, a self-penned autobiography by a woman who lived next to my mother in her sheltered housing, Rosemary Hortzman, and she had an interesting war, as it were, and then she went to work in schools broadcasting in 1950. And so I was basing a lot of that in her experience. And there was a great deal of traffic between the security services and the BBC. Everyone seemed to have worked for one or the other or both at some time. It was quite interesting. The reason I was in, intrigued is because my mother, oh. uh, who was a studio manager here at the BBC, was asked to apply for the BBC and she was a translator at the Foreign Office. So it's not quite as glamorous as mm. MI5 into the BBC, but clearly there was a lot of institutional... Yeah. I mean, you describe it yeah. as monoliths, but it mm. was that kind of churn between mm. these big organisations. Very much so, very much so. And I think you, there's a phrase you use, it's a, this is about Juliet, the, the job was just something she happened to be doing, mm. almost as though you stumble into this work. I think, well, yes, because I think after the war, people did stumble into jobs, I think. I think that's what happened. And there were jobs to be had as well. But I don't think she ever thought of herself as someone who had worked for the BBC, except within MI5, she'd been working with people who'd been in the BBC, so it was a thing that she was very familiar with, I think. But... I mean, I think that's from my point of view, because I, when I graduated, I did all kinds of jobs. I never thought of my path as being a career path, so I rather I kind of identified with this idea of you just five years later, you suddenly find you're doing a job and you never really chose it. Her bit commitment like, is... Like you, Matt, really. Yes, yeah. clearly. Um, I, I tell you what I'm, I'm intrigued by is... Because is, obviously there's quite a lot of what, what um, spies call tradecraft in this, so uh -huh. the, the, the means uh -huh. of getting uh -huh. information and transmitting uh -huh. that information. And I, I'd love to know how much you knew beforehand, because there's a sequence in the book where Juliet sees a dead drop. Now... Uh -huh. I've seen James Bond, I've seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I know what a dead drop is. It's where you leave something and then someone else picks it up. And she sees it and has no clue what's going on and, in fact, tries to retrieve the uh, glove that's dropped by one of the men, mm. clearly as a sign, and give it back to him uh, because she thinks she, she's no idea what was going on. How much of this sort of tradecraft did you know about already from movies and films or, or was coming from, from your own Well, research? yeah, we all know about dead drops and things, but, in fact, the... The title of the chapter that happens in is called Dead Drop. I seem to remember. Yes. But in fact, she never uses that term, I don't think, because that term came into use slightly after the war. And most of the tradecraft, because although the security services started life in 1905, they didn't do much for the, you know, the next 30 years. And so the, the Second World War was when they actually started learning all of these skills and things. So that I think... Although your knowledge of it is from, well, our knowledge of it from uh -huh. now, from, as you say, James Bond movies and so on, that they were just learning how to do those things. And I was, I was balancing on a knife edge with dates because I'd keep looking things up and thinking, would she have known that? Would they have known that word? There was quite a few words I thought, just, just beginning to use, just beginning to use. And so I felt a certain legitimacy in that. But you, when you read, there's not that much been written about, certainly not about the particular um, area I was working in that, that you, it's quite hard to get information and MI5 of course weren't 
give anything away. So. Notorious for not giving too much notorious. away. And, and I did have several what I thought were quite legitimate roads in, but no, they didn't like the way they were portrayed in fiction. And I was sort of, but I'm asking things like, where was the transcription service based in 1939? It's not going to you know, affect national security now, but no, very tight-lipped on anything, which as a, as a writer in a way is good because then you, I mean, I did think, oh, well, I'm free to make up anything then if you're not going to tell me anything. But uh, yes, it's it's funny because you think all of these things are somehow familiar, you know, the dead drops and things, but really they were inventing things, basically, as they went along. As yeah. They went along. yeah. Some of us will have, there is, might have pricked up when you mentioned Dolphin Square uh-huh. uh, as where we, we, we spend a lot of time in the book and where Mosley uh, has his flat. And uh-huh. I've never realised quite what a colourful history, because it's been it in is. the news very recently, of course, with yeah. various allegations very of stuff much. that went on or did mm-hmm. not go on. Mm-hmm. Um, it must be the most notorious block of flats in London. It, it feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, I've melded two stories together because there's the Jack King story and the, and the fascists and then there's the, the Maxwell Knight story as well, who's running the, you know, he's famous for running female spies, Joan Miller and so on, because he thought women were better at tradecraft because they were more devious <laughs> and because also they appeared less devious so that there's this sort of shifting thing going on in, in how they appear. And I just sort of put the two together because he was operating out of Dolphin Square. He decided he didn't want to operate out of an official MI5 base. He wanted secrecy. He was very, very keen on secrecy. So he took a flat in Dolphin Square. So I sort of pushed the two stories together and gave, instead of Jack King or Godfrey Toby, in our case, having a flat in Edgeway Road, he has one in Dolphin Square. And it does, it is, it had that kind of feeling of loose notoriety about it. When you actually look at the flats, they're very small and utilitarian. It's, it's, they are, you know, pied à terre, I suppose, aren't they? And that's what they have been for politicians over the years as well. Are you, are you writing at the moment? I've just finished a book which I'm not supposed to talk about. And, uh, <laughs> I'll reveal. <laughs> yes. and, What's that um, called, Dan? Well, that's called, yeah. You see my, I can see my publicist from here. Um, <laughs> she doesn't matter. Really, not, not this time. Um, no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm under orders. Um, from, yeah. uh, and, I'm, and I'm going to start... An, what I discovered was, you see, normally I finish a book and I've got quite a lot of good energy. And I think, oh, I could just carry on writing because you get a sort of surge. You maybe know this, or maybe it doesn't apply to you, but you get this sort of surge of energy as you approach the end of a book because you're quite excited you're about to finish. And I've often thought, I should just carry on. I should use this this wave and ride it. And then you sort of have it a couple of days and you go, oh, my God, I've got to lie down in a dark room for six months. I've, mm. I've been so good. I've worked so hard. I deserve to do nothing except, you know, tidy my house. And this time... I really thought that would happen this time because this is a very tiring book to to write. It took quite a lot out of me. I got up the day after I finished it and I started another book and I thought that worked really well. So this time I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just going to keep on so that I will be on this treadmill forever now because I can never stop writing. So as as soon as you finish one, you start the next one? This is my plan. Music to your publisher's ears. Oh, God, ears. yeah. <laughs> I don't think she believes it. <laughs> no, I remember uh, one of my favourite books of last year was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, uh, Colson, I think it might even mean in the author's note that he writes in silence. But mm. then the the final chapter, which is this huge climactic ending to the book, he put on some very loud rock music. Yeah. Really? Yeah, wow. which kind of... W- yes. 
And if you read the book, it, you kind of understand yeah. mm-hmm. why why that works. And it's almost like a triumphant march. I understand that. Know? Yes, I, I, do, I do understand that because that is the sort of feeling that you have. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, yes, that's probably how I think too. Do you write any faster than you used to write? Or, or have you slowed down or do you go at the same pace? Do you know, I honestly don't know. I do seem to produce a book more or less every two years. You would think that was the same. Some days I write really fast and other days I write really slowly. I think that's really the answer to that question. I I rewrite more. I've always been an obsessive rewriter, but I think I rewrite more now than I've ever done. So that does sort of slow you up. But in the process of rewriting, you're thinking about what you're writing freshly. So it's it's an odd... An odd thing. I had to, do you know, people ask me questions about writing, and I start explaining, and then I just stop because I am mystified by the writing process and and the unconscious stuff as well that goes on at the back of your brain. I, I don't, I don't understand how characters are formed. I don't understand how ideas come. I just kind of do it like a kind of idiot, idiot savant. So, do you find that reassuring and, and exciting? The fact that you can't explain how it happens, it just does. No, just mystified. I mean, I would be quite interested if someone explained it, but on the other hand. I don't need them to explain it. I'll just keep on being mystified. What was the toughest part of this book? The toughest part of this book was getting the time frames in the right order. That sounds very pedestrian, but it was, I shuffled, when I write a book that's got structure, a bit of structure to it, I usually lay the entire thing out, chapter by chapter, on the carpet in my living room and then just sit in the middle of this circle and look at it and try and work out where things belong. And with this, I moved 1940, 1950 around a lot until... I decided it was okay. It was working. It was working for me anyway. So that, in a way, took up probably more energy than anything else, bizarrely. Just the physical moving of the bits from one Just bit of the Just moving one bit of paper from the other, yes. Took it out of me. <laughs> um, Kate's been very good to see you again. Thank you very much indeed oh, for coming no, thank in. Thank well, What's the name of your new book again? <laughs> oh, so smooth. I like that, yes. Go on. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I can see her. She's gone. <laughs> no. Okay. No, she won't let me. In the meantime, <laughs> we will make do with transcription, which is new from Kate Atkinson. Kate, we appreciate you coming in. Thank no, you so thank much. thank you very much thank for you. having me. So now our good friends at WH Smith are big fans of both Kate Atkinson and this show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. They're big fans of us. Can't oh, well, get let, let's put it another way. Our good friends at WH Smith are big fans of us. <laughs> yes, they are. And Kate Atkinson. As well. As yeah. such, they are offering Kate's book, Transcription, for just £9, which is less than half price. Less than half price. Which is a pretty good deal. Wow. Plus, they're giving away a free copy of The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende to all purchasers of Kate's new book. So you buy two, you get two books for, for the price of one, for the price of half of one. So, which is extraordinary. Yeah. So, uh, describe the cover of yes. Isabel's book. Okay, so we have got, uh, well, here is our rule about what is a classy book. If you've got someone's face, but you can't see their eyes, then that means this is a classy book, and that's yes. what we've got here. So, we've got a picture of a woman, but uh, the, the the picture is dominating the front page of this uh, hardback copy, and it's taken from her nose downwards. And uh, a lot of floral covers there. Isabel Allende, the international bestseller. Uh, picked out in blue and then the Japanese lover uh, with lovely script in red across it with uh, a nice little testament saying that Isabel Allende is a master storyteller. Okay, and uh, so you can get that for free and you get Kate's book for for £9. So this offer runs out on September the 13th, 2018. Well, it's not long to go, is it? So if you are listening to this in the future and it's no longer (laughs) early September... Oh, dear. 
then uh, what has happened? Tell us what has happened Spurs to the world. Spurs top of the league, Liverpool oh, have lost a consecutive season. Anyway, <laughs> President Pence. Who'd have thought? Didn't see that one coming. Anyway, mm. this deal no longer applies. If President Pence is in charge, <laughs> forget then, it. Then that deal is off. Everything is off. To be honest, life in itself. If Spurs are still top of the league, it's all off. Anyway, so the deal no longer applies. So the offer runs out September the 13th, so don't give the sales staff a hard time. No. It's not their fault. But you get Kate's book for a nine quid, and you get Isabel's book for free, but only up until September the 13th. Act fast. Boom. Now. So thanks to Kate and uh, also to our friends at WH Smith who are yes. assisting and guiding as we move along. I just want to mention our occasional thing, which we do just about young writers. Uh-huh. Uh, when we get sent material, which might have you might have seen something in school, you might have, might be one of your children, it might be a niece or a nephew or a brother or a sister. Uh, and if you think it's worthy of our attention, by all means, just let us know, just because it's nice to highlight uh, young authors yes. and some encouragement. Got an email from Simon Calcutt said, Simon and Matt, I stumbled across this back in April and thought it would fit your request for things by young writers. Kate Clanchy is a teacher and she tweeted a photo of a poem by Freya, who is 14. 14, OK. OK, so right. Freya is 14, don't yeah. have any other details, but Kate Clanchy is the teacher. So Freya wrote this and he's got a great final line. It's a poem. I know you love your poetry. <laughs> I am stuck on you like chewing gum. Trouble is with reading poetry is I always end up sounding as though I'm trying to pretend I'm a poet. Well, no, that's fair enough. Okay. You've got, I mean, you've got to deliver it in a certain way, haven't you? You have. Yeah. I'm stuck on you like chewing gum. Under those desks we talk at, scribble down lyrics, on the wood from songs that weren't made for us, but fit like I know my hand would in yours. We shiver together and I laugh as you slip on the ice. My voice may not have sung for you yet, but my heart is an entire orchestra. That is a good last line. Did I do that justice? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I'm just aware it's, yes. it's someone else's craft. Yes, well, know. no, yeah, but I think you delivered it and did it justice. Good, yeah. thank you. I'm just yeah. looking for reinforcement. Yeah. You know, well, well done. A little bit of support. Um, Daniel Woodrow, who's a head teacher at St Gregory's Primary School, says, I've been really enjoying the Books of the Year podcast, and when you asked for recommendations, I thought you might like to hear from our school book club. Uh, it's made up of 15 Year 5 and Year 6 children, uh, run by the incredible Mrs Piper, who's a teaching assistant with a real passion for books, who gives up her own time gladly to share that passion and ignite it in our pupils. In the last year or so... They've read and enjoyed titles including Bubble Boy by Stuart Foster, Skellig by David Armand, uh, Beetle Boy by M.G. Leonard, Wonder by R.J. Palacio. I love that book. Uh, Boy in the Tower by Polly Ho Yen, all of which have received glowing reviews. Uh, book Club's recommendation for your listeners is the Nat Walker trilogy by Susan Moore, uh, Crimson Poison, Emerald Secret and Indigo Island, recommended reading age nine years and over. Uh, these books are set in the not-too-distant future and tell the story of Nat, an orphan who stands to inherit a fortune from her parents' gaming empire, but who must deal with a host of sinister forces who are after her legacy and the power and influence they think it'll bring. Susan Moore used to work for George Lucas at Skywalker Ranch. Wow. Yeah. And that influence is clear in the books. Uh, they have kung fu, gaming, robot companions, great inventions, exciting set pieces, and a strong female lead, and book club loved them. As Toby, one of our pupils, put it, I want to be best friends with Nat, I want to play with all the gadgets in Susan Moore's world, and I 
I want to jump into the pages of the book and shout at Nat's family for being so vile. Thanks again for a great podcast. If you need a school book club to review anything for you, just let us know. That's Daniel Woodrow at St Gregory's. Thank you, Daniel. And if you'd like, or Sir, as we should probably call him, yes. and if you'd like to get involved and take part, recommend books, say how much you like Torchy the Battery Boy, that kind no, of thing. No, I mean, the, clearly I'm now going to have to stand down on my Torchy the Battery Boy didn't exist. Clearly, because so many people remember him exactly like right. you. Uh, books of the Year at yahoo.com is our email. Uh, you can tweet at Books of the Year. Yes, and next week we have yes. John Boyne, A Ladder to the Stars, which is superb, which I had to stop myself from reading because I was enjoying it so much and I didn't want to devour it all in one day. Um, so there's that. And what else have we got? Speeches of Note by Sean Usher. Well, he's compiled them anyway. Yes. And he did Letters of Note and everything else. Yes, so no, very good. Big yeah. hefty books and another top podcast on the way. Thank you for downloading us. Thank you, Matt. You've been amazing. You have been a revelation. Your mum's been a revelation. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.